The Future of Smart, a project of Grantmakers for Education, will explore ideas at the intersection of education, equity, and philanthropy that point us towards a radical re-envisioning of our education system. We'll hear from those working at the edge of what's possible and explore what it means to support transformative change for young people and their communities. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Future of Smart podcast, a project of Grantmakers for Education. My name is Olga Joshi Hansen. I'm Chief Program Officer of Grantmakers for Education, author of the book, The Future of Smart, and your host. Let's start with a question. If you were going to judge how well a student had learned something, would you opt for a multiple choice test or a short conversation with the student about the content they engaged with and how exactly they engaged with it? Most people default to the test in a percentage grade. Intuitively, we feel like the test is more objective and the student's self-assessment is more subjective. That's why there's so much emphasis in this country on standardized test scores from grade school into graduate school. If you're a funder or a grantee, you've probably been asked to measure and report impact on the basis of quantitative metrics rather than written reports about the stories that people tell. These default tendencies are yet another example of the Cartesian-Newtonian worldview that we've explored in past episodes of this podcast. It's a perspective that favors abstraction, comparison, and quantitative measurement, and it's been dominant in the West since the scientific revolution. During that period in Europe, philosophers and scientists began to dismiss subjective knowledge, things like feelings, emotions, or lived experience, in favor of more objective ways of knowing the world. And they changed the world in many ways for the better. For example, we moved from folklore about evil spirits causing disease to a world where we can predict and treat diseases pretty consistently. However, in the shift to value objective data, we lost sight of two things. First, nothing is ever truly objective. Nothing ever really exists independent of other things. Even in randomized control trials, where we try to isolate specific variables, we end up limiting our understanding of that variable because we've blocked out the context. So, for example, we end up with drugs that are effective in clinical trials, but later turn out to be problematic for some subgroups, like women, because the trials were conducted mostly by men, mostly on male subjects. The second reason there's no such thing as really objective knowledge is that human beings can't separate who they are and where they come from from their process of judgment and decision-making. As a researcher, my background and experience influence the questions I think are worth asking, how I shape my research methodology, and how I interpret the data. Because our country's higher education system has historically privileged white males, a lot of the research that we rely on reflects that narrow set of perspectives. Huge portions of the country have been left out. Within indigenous epistemology, to know something is to locate it in space and time and consider it as part of a larger order in which all things are interrelated. Feminist epistemology focuses on how the social location of the knower affects what and how she knows. Our social identities, things like gender, race, sexual orientation, or class, influence our social location and therefore how we know things. 
Within a dominant culture that's patriarchal and highly Eurocentric, these alternative epistemologies enable us to see and study elements of life that have been overlooked or ignored. And different epistemologies often lead to different conclusions. Today's guest, Dr. Michelle Fine, focuses on social injustice as it shows up in research. As a trained philosopher myself, I loved that the term epistemic justice came up in the first two minutes of our conversation. Epistemic injustice is injustice related to knowledge. It means excluding and silencing particular voices or perspectives, systematically distorting or misrepresenting the way someone contributes or makes meaning, undervaluing someone for how they communicate, or giving some groups more power than they deserve to decide which knowledge is valid. Sometimes it looks like researchers studying students or communities in an effort to produce quote-unquote valid knowledge, rather than starting from a presumption that students and communities hold knowledge that should be leveraged in designing systems and policies. In speaking with Michelle, I was reminded about Isabel Wilkerson's introduction to her powerful book, Cast, where she talks about the fear we have in America about exploring our history of race and racism. She compares it to being unwilling to explore the basement of a house. It might be okay, unless there are structural problems with the house that you can only see from the basement. Michelle talks about the disassociated way that we approach our research, as though some researchers and policymakers are afraid of what they might find, or of what they don't know. I was struck by this observation. I'm increasingly feeling like some of our traditional methods are about a terror of knowing, a terror of touching, a terror of being moved. Join me as we explore these ideas and others with Dr. Michelle Fine, who among other titles and roles is the Distinguished Professor of Critical Psychology, Women's Studies, American Studies, and Urban Education at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York and serves on the faculty of the University of South Africa. Welcome, Michelle. Thanks for being here today. It's a joy to be with you again. So I always love to start with people as people. And so could you just tell us a little bit about how you got here, how you came to this particular work, research, um, what drives you? Hmm. Okay, so as people, uh, the way I tell the story uh, is that I am the uh, youngest child of two Jewish refugees from Poland that came in the 20s. My mother was the youngest of 18, my dad an orphan, the chemist children. Um, and, you know, we arrived, they arrived uh, to New Jersey at, at a moment in U.S. history that some would say when the Jews became white, um, where opportunity structures, op oppression and anti-Semitism notwithstanding, that opportunity structures were available for suburbanization, for uh, post uh, post-war GI scholarships, etc. So that was the era uh, where my parents grew up. My father did the the uh, immigrant story of progress and opportunity in America and doors are open and the streets are paved with gold. And my mom held the depression and sadness of loss. And I think that unfortunate gender splitting happens in many immigrant families. Um, so as the youngest daughter of the youngest daughter, 
um, I feel like I got to bear witness to um, one is the wisdom cultivated at the margins of a culture. The second is that progress narratives always have a cost and often progress and despair sleep together. And the third is that um, it matters what position you're situated in, but also the commitments that you bring to that um, position. So I grew up eventually um, in a comfortable white working class, middle class household, went to college, got my PhD in experimental psychology, got my first job at University of Pennsylvania, um, met wealth up front in a way that I hadn't met it before. It intimidated me a fair amount, all those forks at the um, president's dining room table is um, my best embodiment of what it felt like to uh, suddenly be in the Ivies. And then I chose to leave Penn, um, leave a distinguished chair and come to CUNY uh, to be at a public university. And um, it was probably around that time where I got more interested in what you and I would call epistemic justice, that is the kind of research that values wisdom cultivated in the shadows, in the margins, in the prisons, um, in communities not recognized for producing knowledge. So that's who I am in a nutshell. And uh, I live in a multi-generational household. And on Sundays, I take my two-year-old grandbaby swimming. So Aww. now you know everything that's important to know. About. That is amazing. So well done. <laughs> and and we got epistemic justice like in the first five minutes, which doesn't happen that often. <laughs> um, so you spend your time thinking about power. Um, you do research and education. Tell us about how you think about the intersection of power and research um, in, in, in this space. Sure. Um, so let's see. I can... I can tell you that I I am most comfortable engaged in what we call critical participatory action research. And if anyone wants to go to the Public Science Project website, you'll see many of our scholarly reports, um, amicus briefs, expert testimony in lawsuits, academic papers, videos by and for young people. Um, so there are maybe three different ways to answer your question about power. There is the epistemological question of who is assumed to have the right and the qualifications to conduct research, to produce knowledge. So that's the first place where I depart from many of my colleagues, where we are really committed to working with and alongside those most impacted by social injustice, um, school pushouts, LGBTQ young people, undocumented families, women in prison, um, so we do research with, not on. Uh, when I was at the um, University of New Zealand in Auckland at the Maori Institute, I was working with Linda Tehiwai Smith, who's best known for her work on decolonizing methodologies. And um, 
she and disability activists and HIV activists talk about no research on us without us. So that's that's one platform where power matters to me. Um, the second platform has to do with the unit of analysis that we study. That is, it would be a mistake for you to say, Michelle, why do you study poor kids who have dropped out of school or women in prison or undocumented families? And it would be correct for you to say, Michelle, as a person who's probably benefited from education, policing, um, immigration laws, how do you find your place studying mm -hmm. histories, structures, and dynamics that have benefited you but have hurt others so much? And so that's another place where in our work we shift the unit of analysis. We are never studying a people, a population, a community. We are studying laws, processes, dynamics, policies that benefited my parents in 1922 when they just crawled under the immigration gate that was coming down. We study aggressive policing that probably walks me across the street uh, when I go to work and then does something quite other to the young people I work with. Um, we study educational systems that have clearly benefited me, that I know oppress along the lines of race or class or um, sexuality or immigration status or disability. So the second platform where power feels important is that we study systems of inequitable power, not populations that have been subordinated. Kind of like... Um, the Philadelphia Negro and W.E.B. Du Bois, I take him to bed a lot um, <laughs> because he reminds us that the way social scientists or philanthropy, thank you, have framed social problems is like, what's wrong with the Negro community in Philadelphia at the end of the um, 1800s, early 1900s? And that was the Wharton family, now mm -hmm. the Wharton Business School. Um, and... Du Bois understood he was being hired for a racist question, but he flipped the script. And that's what I hope we do, that we will get called in to study downstream symptoms, but we will then interrogate power inequities, histories, structures that have produced those inequities. And also now on all of our projects, we feel obligated to help people imagine what else is possible, not mm -hmm. just to critique, um, but to offer up images of what else is possible because there is maybe the fourth, which is the power of the imagination to, um, and, and here I credit my now deceased girlfriend, Maxine Green, who helped me think through um, the radical imagination and how important it is to speak to power and to everyday people, not only about what is, but what could be. Mm. I've heard you talking about that that idea of downstream 
um, symptoms, but it's the upstream kind of um, aggregation of power and opportunity, right, that we that we don't study a lot and don't spend a lot of time on. I, I'm curious, in your engagement and your research methodologies, do you also at some point bring in those in power who would have to be part of the radical reimagining and building of the future? Yeah. Um, I mean, it depends on the context, as you can imagine. But uh, you know that we've done a lot of work with women in prison. Um, so there was a research collective born at Bedford Hills Women's Facility in, in the 90s. Most of the women are now out. And we have been doing research together for 30 years. Um, and we're very good friends, very good colleagues. Some are social workers, some are professors at Columbia. Um, in that context, we would never invite the superintendent of the prison or the correctional officers onto our contact zone, our research collaborative, but we made sure to interview them. To um, I would meet with the superintendent every other week, even though we were meeting as a collective every other week, to make sure she was cool with what we're doing. We were telling a good story about prison, um, but we also then were obligated to interview the leaders of the Black and Latino Caucus in the state legislature to say, we're about to do this report on the impact of college and prison. What do you need us to deliver for you to convince your colleagues that investing in TAP grants, which just got restored this week after 30 years, Congratulations. Um, that investing in TAP grants is worth their while. Um, so we distinguish between to whom is our research accountable? And we usually, when we start a project, write letters of accountability. Hmm. Um, dear, former self, child who died, land that's been occupied, movement we were a part of, future self, elder. Mm -hmm. I think of you often and I want you to know my work is. Mm -hmm. But we also write letters of audience because that work might be dedicated to the women still behind bars, but we knew we had audience of lawmakers, people who didn't agree with us people who did not believe that prison was unduly harsh. Um, so that's a big part of participatory work, whether it's quantitative or qualitative or archival or historic, a kind of an intentionality about to whom we're accountable and who's our audience. So we have to write into dominant narratives. So I might not like how high-stakes testing has curdled particularly low-income schooling, but I can't not address that if we're doing studies of schooling. I can't not address that if we're looking at college access. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, we look at the downstream, we, lo we look at the upstream, we look at oppression, we look at humor, joy, dignity, the desire for what else is possible. So there's one other piece of power embedded in what you've just said. Research has had a lot of power to dictate the kind of directions that we've gone in education over the last 20 years. But we've privileged or legitimized randomized control trials or other approaches that seem more objective. 
I've heard you say that the work you do is an epistemology and not a methodology. Can you talk more about that? When I say epistemology, it's a big fancy word for where does knowledge live? And I want all the listeners to think about the wisdom your grandmother or great-grandmother had that might not have shown up in your undergraduate college education. I want you to think about the knowledge produced in prison um, by men and women who think hard about the conditions that brought them there and then the conditions of incarceration. I want you to think about the knowledge produced in the basement of our schools where special ed is usually um, exiled, right? Um, so in critical part, there is a kind of generous democratic understanding that knowledge is produced widely, but legitimacy is not. Mm. And, and so if critical part annoys traditional researchers, it's that I think the people who clean the buildings we work in have a lot of knowledge about us, much more than we have about them. And that we're interested in doing um, research, not that romanticizes that, but not that presumes that academics have a monopoly on what constitutes knowledge. That's the first thing I'll say. The, the second thing is I don't walk away from notions of objectivity, validity, or generalizability. I'm nerdy enough, trained as an experimental social psychologist, have done plenty of lab-based studies, enough to appreciate the elegance of experimental design. But I've done enough work in schools, in communities, in prisons, to know how much context matters. And so I try to bring the elegance and rigor of that experimental design to the real conditions that are not randomly assigned. Um, the, the day we randomly assign all children to good schools and bad schools, regardless of um, of how much they how much tax money they get, the day that we randomly assign children to poverty and wealth, that's the day I'll say, hmm, hmm, that's a gold standard. Um, but you and I know that that's funny because it's cruel and impossible, and the. Um, and so I guess I privilege context validity over internal validity. Uh, again, for the nerds in the room, you'll get it. You might disagree, but you know what I mean. For those of you who don't know this language, I'm more interested in the conditions under which than whether or not A produces B in an abstract hygiene environment. Um, and I'm quite interested in generalizability, that is, to what extent to our findings from studies of alternative schools in New York or um, performance-based assessments travel to other contexts? To what extent do they predict college going and college persistence? Um, so it might not be a narrow statistical generalizability, but it's what I've called a provocative generalizability. To what extent can our research provoke an imagination of what else is possible? So I'm increasingly feeling like some of our methods are about a terror of knowing, a terror of touching, a terror of being moved. So I worry that we back into method 
when we actually fear being moved um, by the material on the ground. So my kind of nerdy alternative is to figure out, can we be moved and rigorous? Can we bring in um, colleagues who don't come traditionally trained, share their uh, wisdom and be humble about our own? And we've been able to do that for 30 years. Mm. I'm wondering if we can dig into some specific examples um, of the work that you've done so that we can both help our listeners understand the methodology and exactly what goes into it, but then also just some of your findings in terms of things in education that could be generalizable, right, from the sure. kind of margins that maybe you're studying to bigger conversations. 19, uh, 1994, Bill Clinton signed the Violent Crime Act that pulled Pell Grants out of prisons. I had friends up at Bedford Hills. There was a vibrant college program, and uh, the lights went out. And when the lights went out in the college program, which was educating about 200 of 600 women, lights went out in the GED program, the ACE program, the ESL program, that the sense of hope and possibility um, shut down. And uh, the women inside the prison mobilized to bring college back. There's a report of this called Changing Minds, the Impact of Pri College and Prison. You can find it online at prisonpolicy.org. So the women mobilized for college and they asked me to document the impact of college because they knew it could no longer be taken for granted. Um, and so we got a consortium of universities, mostly led by women presidents, to each contribute to faculty. And college was resurrected within six months at Bedford Hills. Um, when they asked me to do the evaluation, I suggested that we do a participatory evaluation. And so um, two of my doctoral students taught a master's level, because many of the women had college um, undergraduate degrees by now, a uh, master's level methods course. And we taught them methods, which we do in all of our PAR projects. We have what we call a research camp. So that if you're going to bring differently mm -hmm. positioned people together, you should share a language. You should fight about what words work. You should uh, figure out what do we mean by objectivity? What do we mean by validity? How do we ask questions that we're scared to ask? How do we, dare we talk to the correction officers, many of whom hate the college program because they can't afford college for their own kids? Dare we speak to them? So we created this class of 15 and each woman crafted five questions, uh, one question that she asked of five friends and so by the end of the course, we had 75 interviews. Um, and there were questions like, what's the impact of college on women who've experienced domestic violence? Or what's the impact on our children? Or how do the correction officers feel about this? Or what are the recidivism rates of women who um, leave prison with college? After that, a smaller group of seven agreed to continue over what ended up being four years. We would meet every other week in the prison, and we created a very kind of boring, 
straightforward, experimental-looking design of what are the cost benefits, what are the recidivism rates, what's the impact on the women, what's the impact on the correction officers, what's the impact on their children, and when women are released, what are the implications of college and prison. So it was quantitative, qualitative, narrative, it was historic, um, we all analyzed the data together. We've written academic papers for the American Psychological Association. We, we produced a white paper for every state legislator in New York State and every governor in the country. So that report has been used extensively, extensively to justify the restoration of Pell Grants, of TAP Grants, the um, proliferation of college and prison programs. So that's one example. And then the women got out, and since that time, we've do been doing a lot of work together. Another example is I work closely with a set of schools in New York City called the Performance-Based Consortium. And... Um, those schools have a waiver from most of the state regents. There are five. Those schools take one. And, um, and in its stead, the students produce performance-based assessments in order to graduate. So at the And these are everyday kids. These are, for the most part, not selective schools. Um, they're more likely to be low-income experience, homelessness, in the Bronx, uh, Black, Latinx, immigrant with disabilities, they come into high school with lower eighth grade scores than the typical New York City kid, but they're also more likely to graduate, more likely to go to college. So those schools are pretty remarkable. And for young people to graduate, they have to um, present their performance assessments to a roundtable of other students, teachers, and people like myself, university professors, people like yourself, philanthropists, corporate folks. Um, and at the end of those roundtables, you could tell them, that was fabulous, you're, amazing. Or you could tell them, you're not there yet. Um, you will be. You're going to have to revise this. And nobody runs out saying, oh, my God, I failed. These schools have a culture of assessment and inquiry, and dignity, and feedback, and revision, and uh, student-led projects, and teacher scaffolding work, and external evaluations. So it's a culture of inquiry. It will not surprise you these schools have very low suspension rates. They have very high teacher stability, and they have high graduation and college-going rates. Uh, fast forward, we decided to do a couple of participatory studies about what happens to the graduates of these schools. So the first study was by Laurie Chaget. She interviewed a bunch of the graduates, and we found not only do they persist longer in college and are more likely to graduate than typical New York City graduates, but the, the three unique characteristics that they have is they're not nervous when they have to present a paper and or write a paper. And uh, they were surprised that their college roommates were like throwing up the night before they had a paper due um, because they'd been writing papers for a long time. The second is that when they hit a bump in the road, they found a grown up. 
either at their college or, or at their high school. And the third is that they know how to revise, um, which I fear mm. is a 20th century skill that we're losing. So they know how to infuse their passions and inquiry, take feedback, revise, and do it again. We then created a quantitative database of consortium graduates who were attending CUNY because a fair number um, end up going to the CUNY system, which you know is a large system. And we've been tracking them now for four or five years. And again, we find that they're blacker, browner, more likely to be from the Bronx than the typical CUNY student who are more likely to be from Queens, white or Asian. They're more likely to be low income, but they have higher persistence rates, higher GPA, more credit accumulation, uh, than the typical CUNY student. I am waiting on the COVID data, um, but I would put money on the fact that these kids persisted despite the odds and the, the pressures of COVID. And then when we did an intersectional analysis, we found that the impact of the consortium schools was greatest for black males who were coming out of the consortium mm -hmm. schools, who again, learn how to revise, learn how to get help, learn how to use feedback, learn how to persist in the midst of obstacles. So those are two very different projects, one with women in prison, one with teachers, um, high school students and graduates, but always done in communities of knowledge production uh, where we begin from very different positions, but over time we craft a question use quantitative, qualitative methods. And we're always thinking with intention about who are the audiences we need to, we need to be speaking to. Do you have an example where the project went in a surprising direction because of this critical participatory action approach? So one was a big national survey of LGBTQIA young people, mostly of color, um, uh, a group of 40 came to the Graduate Center from 10 communities around the country. We trained them, we paid them, we put them up in hotels. It was gorgeous. They were from Jackson, Mississippi and San Francisco and LA and Denver and Chicago and New Jersey. And um, they crafted a national survey to be distributed to LGBTQIA young people around the country. We solicited from uh, 40 youth organizations around the country. We sent them $100 gift certificates to host survey question generating parties. So Missoula, Montana, the hmm. YMCA sent us questions that were Missoula-ish. Uh, young people in Florida, even then, were contending with a different set of issues. Salt Lake City, we got lots of questions from young people who identify as queer Mormons. So those questions were all folded into our Meshuggah, gorgeous, hilarious survey that includes standardized questions around suicide, depression, family, policing, schools, but also activism and freedom dreams. And what do you do in your spare time? And if you were going to create a banner, what would it say? And what's your proudest moment? So then we brought mm -hmm. the young people together again after we got 6,000 responses from every state in the country 
from uh, Puerto Rico and Guam. We brought them back to analyze the data. And, uh, and these young people, who most of whom would constitute school pushouts or dropouts, um, were extraordinary at doing statistical analyses or generating multiple regressions. So one young person, London, who identifies as Creole black trans woman from New Orleans, I think age 18, London said, can we look at the data? And um, if you're thrown out of your parents' home at age 14, are you more likely to drop out of school by 17, and then are you more likely to be homeless by 18, and are you more likely to be picked up by the police by 20, and are you more likely to be selling your body for money or shelter or food by 21? And so in that moment, we did what we call stats in action. And of course, that trajectory, unfortunately, panned out. And we found that being homeless is like the best predictor of all those crappy outcomes that get attached to LGBTQIA bodies. Another young pe- person, Dimitri, we were looking at the education data, and there was a lot of bullying, a lot of depression, a lot of um, push out. And Dimitri said, you know, I had a great high school experience. Dimitri went to Boston High School of the Arts, and he said, they said, Everybody was like black or of color, and so many people were gay and trans. And we said, well, what were the critical elements, Dimitri? And we could extract that on the survey. And there were four that Dimitri named. Having an out teacher, gay, lesbian, trans. Hmm. Having LGBTQ material in history, English, or sexuality having a gay-straight alliance, and having an adult you trust. All of these are no cost. We don't need philanthropy for these. We just need courage. Mm-hmm. So with those four interventions, we then created a school dignity scale, and we looked at students who went to a dignity school and a non-dignity school, and we found that the levels of bullying, the levels of suicidal thought, the levels of depression were much in push-out, were much lower in the dignity schools than the non-dignity schools. And we found that there were almost no dignity schools in the South because teachers can't be out. Mm -hmm. So you begin to understand how structural conditions affect psychological outcomes. We're back to the downstream rather than thinking, oh, you're depressed because you're gay. You're depressed because Mm -hmm. your family might have thrown you out or you get bullied in school and there are no adult mentors to talk to. And then you leave school and then the police are on you. But there were um, less thrilling moments that I think you're calling up here where um, having youth knowledge in the room really mattered. And that was when we got the 6,000 responses and I absolutely naively said, okay, so now we're going to divide them by gender, sexuality, and race, and see, are there different outcomes by race, by gender, by sexuality, and by geography? And these 40 young people who we had worked with over a year and a half were furious. They felt betrayed that I, we were Mm -hmm. reinscribing 
the very categories they had worked so hard and believed we were committed to disrupting. They were not willing to put themselves mm. in a box called male, female, gay, straight. Mm. Um, and uh, they they walked out. We had to do like a ceremony with a ca- candle and go to the trans day parade to heal. And then I said, all right, let's just look at one variable. Let's look at contact with police by race. And we had a, every demographic category had an open-ended question, which they had insisted on. So, Ulka, how would you describe your gender? And then if you had to squeeze into these categories, which one would you check as many as apply? How would you describe your race? How would you describe your sexuality? Mm-hmm. So anybody who had black as part of their identity was in black. Perverse, apartheid, genocide, like Holocaust, right? So, but it's the kind of thing we do as researchers all the time. And yet, when we looked at police involvement, the black kids across the country, had so much higher rates of negative police harassment compared to white kids. And police harassment was highly related to a whole set of psychological, suicidal, et cetera, outcomes. And so we ended up with a not-so-friendly compromise that we were permitted statistically divide the sample by these demographic categories in order to understand the blades of oppression. But whenever we talked about young people in their full selves using qualitative material, we would always use the open-ended ways they refer to their gender. So that, Hmm. and it forced me to think Why do we assume that the categories that we use to talk about structural issues are the same as the categories that we use to talk about our subjectivities? Why have Hmm. we collapsed those? So that was a big fight. This thing about categories was a huge issue. Those are the kinds of arguments that are only better with more diverse communities of knowledge producers. I want to pull on one thread because I think whether it's in foundations or research, this notion of participation and participatory is coming up a lot. And you have talked over and over again about how you set the stage for people to come together as equals. So I've been in situations sometimes where you include youth voice and then all of a sudden they're deferred to for everything, whether or not that's an area of expertise. Tell us a little bit about that, because it feels like a very important part of this power conversation and the outcomes, right? The quality of the outcomes you're going to you're going to get to. I want to talk about uh, both sides of that. So the conditions for producing deep participation that honors, but not with monogamy, the expertise of those most impacted and works against the power dynamics that you know are in the room. So whether it's adult youth or white people, people of color, or we bring together young people from private schools and AP and special ed and the Gay Straight Alliance and the Latino Club and Black Lives Matter. And often the white kids think they're there to tutor the kids of color. It's a little painful. 
or they'll talk over them like um, what Ulka, Ulka didn't mean to sound angry. <laughs> right? There's a lot of that that happens. Um, and so we've got to like work whiteness, power, privilege at the same time that we're amplifying the sense of entitlement and engagement of those who don't believe they're entitled to a voice, don't think they have anything to participate, don't learn in traditional ways, don't speak English, feel at the margins or feel mm -hmm. shame. So that's that's what you got to work against at these research camps. You got to like tamp down the kind of I know better, let's help my less privileged brothers and sisters come along. Um, a kind of I think sincere, I know a lot of my friends of color would say not, but some of these kids are just, they're, they're trying, they're awkward, they don't know how to be with, so they be for, or they defer, as you were suggesting, everything to the people of color, to the formerly incarcerated women, to school pushouts who know what they know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but the, the task is that actually we all have something to contribute. So some of us have to stop talking, step back, listen, be humble, but others have to be amplified. So if people need to do work in their native language or they're visual or graphic artists rather than writers, or if they're fabulous at mathematics, um, they'll do the survey work. So the first few days, hours of our research camps are really about the gifts you bring. What wisdom do you bring? What knowledge? Um, what's your skill? What's your comfort? Um, what do you need to be in the room? Do you need me to be quiet? Do you need white people to listen to you first? Do you need adults not to participate for a while? Do we need a thing on the wall? I'm giving you examples of what we've done. Oops, ouch, ooh, la, la. So... It, these are like community we'll do a go agreements. around with um, say something about yourself that we wouldn't otherwise know. And the kid that everybody's afraid of plays the violin with his grandmother or <laughs> tennis with, you know, a baby brother that that the stereotypes explode. Or we ask, and this will be my last example, we ask people to make um, visual maps of like, how'd you get here? Um, we often call our projects the gifts you bring. And we've done that with foster students at CUNY and formerly incarcerated folks at CUNY. We start with a map and we just give people blank paper and um, magic markers. And I say, just draw your journey. Use red for what got in your way, green for what facilitated you, and purple for your wonderful wild self. And... Then people put those up on the wall. So when we did this with foster youth, everybody started out head on desk, hoodies, um, laying quietly, not really listening. But once they started writing and created a museum, and then we did a gallery walk. And then I said, who wants to present your journey? The hoodies mm -hmm. came off, the jackets came off, the tattoos came out the expertise started to shine. And usually I say, look, you are brought here because you know things that most people don't know. And you're representing young people in New York City with experiences just like yours. 
So what feels like shame at this moment you have to turn into knowledge because we need questions on this survey about pins or being stopped by the police or being unjustly um, beaten up by police or having an incarcerated father. Like you have wisdom and other people need the courage to be able to talk about it. So convert your shame to knowledge and go in that corner and fill out the questions that we'll be asking. Over time, people begin to understand that this is a different kind of work where we're not there to turn them into subjects of inquiry, but producers of knowledge. It takes a while. For good reason, they're suspect of people who look and sound like me. Um, we pay them, we feed them, we publish with them. Um, and when they see their questions on the survey or in the interview guide, they then feel responsible um, for the quantitative or qualitative data that they've hoped to gather, and they feel like they have an obligation to represent. That's, that's amazing. I'm I'm so struck in this example. You know, a lot of our dominant systems that were birthed out of this worldview kind of dehumanize all of us, right? And the systems that we operate in, whether it's unrestrained capitalism or kind of patriarchal top-down systems do that. And when you think about the other side of it, more human-centered systems, more collectivist ways of being, they often operate like fractals, where the kind of research you're doing reflects a lot of the kinds of experiences that you would want systems to reflect in how people relate, which reflect how classrooms kind of in schools operate, right? And you're you're describing this and I'm thinking is that this could be a classroom. This could be the education we actually give our young people with all these rich elements. So I'm just struck by that because in this podcast we're trying to explore, right? How do we pull this thread of human centeredness um and connectedness back through a lot of the kind of systems that that exist. And part of that is funding. And so I'm curious, you know, as as we close what would you say to listeners, many of whom are funders, have power, they have uh, money, they have time, they have the ability to convene? What would you say to them about helping us as a field to enrich the kind of research that we do, enrich the kinds of conversations we can have about what it means to build different systems that better support young people in their communities? Um. Good. Uh, I, I just want to reinforce your sense that this work has good karma. It just builds culture connections. All of a sudden, artists are flying in from California because they want to represent the work. Uh, all of a sudden, the pedagogy, the oppressed people want to work with us. So young people perform the data. Yesterday, I gave a a keynote to educators from Consortium International and Outward Bound Schools uh, about much of this work. And it was a story within a story because I was talking about participatory action research about their schools, but they're all engaged in their schools, nourishing young people to find a question they care deeply about, to interrogate it with, with a kind of rigor and to present it to a variety of audiences. And they've seen the beauty that kind of blossoms in, in halting bodies, in 
bodies that are not used to being opened. And actually, those educators also know what they're not delivering um, because they're so intimate with so many of the young people and they know what can't be delivered. Mm -hmm. They know, and yet in every one of our surveys for the last 30 years, having a teacher that you trust carries you through the acid rain. It doesn't stop the acid rain, but it's like a little umbrella of protection. Um, so what can funders... So I, I want to take on two notions where I think um, funders screw up. Uh, forget like the colonial that you think you're the change makers, whatever. Forget that your money is stolen from the wages of real workers. Okay, whatever. <laughs> or taxes. All right, I'm not even doing those. Um, scale, participation, and sustainability. So let me do participation first. As you can hear, um, our work is deeply committed to participation, ground in the perspectives of those most impacted by injustice, but we till the soil for a long time with a lot of resources to make sure that everybody is actually participating with passion. I don't want to say equally or equitably, but with a passion in a context of dignity, of discovery, the best sense of discovery, joy, surprise, and deep inquiry on a policy issue that matters. Then when we do that, here's what philanthropy sometimes does. It takes what we found and turns it into a noun and Xeroxes it and puts it everywhere. So there should be college improvement. We were at a session at Ford years ago and um, Gates was there and Ford and they were all going to like take college and prison to scale and 250 prisons by next year will have college and prison. And now I will tell you, there's a lot of college in prison, and it's on a tablet, and you could do it alone in your cell. The joy of the college program, the impact of the college program, is that it was built by women, for women. They developed the rules. They understood. Faculty came in, hugged, touched, read. We had, we had McBride come in and read The Color of Water. We had Eve Ensler working mm -hmm. with the women. The women critiqued each other's work. The women understood when we had a fundraiser that we had to raise money for the child of a woman in prison, the child of a murder victim, and the child of a correction mm -hmm. officer, because they understood solidarity. When participation is ripped out in the name of going to scale, it, it, you've taken the soul out of transformative ideas. And, uh, you know, most of the time, the stuff I'm connected to <laughs> fails. Or, or nobody listens. But when you listen, you nounify it. <laughs> you turn it into a thing in the name of going to scale. So deep participation on the building and on the um, implementation side. So you can say to a school, how are community partners involved? How are youth involved? What are you paying them? Do you have a community advisory board that's also going to hold the data? Do you have school dropouts? Do you have undocumented kids? Do you think through who's 
most impacted and make sure that they're in a loving accountability, not a gotcha, but a loving accountability system. So that's participation. When you go to scale, you need to distinguish principles of practice that should be true across and then have a ton of room for joyous local creativity and um, spontaneous innovation. So when the international schools went to scale, they, were be- they are beautiful schools in New York City for new immigrants who you just have to fail an English test to get in. Um, when they grew from one or two to nine or 12 now, they used to at least have a requirement that all new principals had to spend a year in an international school, that every Monday all the principals would talk, that they had shared commitments to not tracking, to honoring one's home language, to learning English, to community engagement. But when the folks ended up building a school in uh, Los Angeles, they called the folks in New York and said, we can't do community engagement in the same way. We've got gangs. So we're going to, so that was a principle, but it wasn't a Xerox replication. Mm. Replication is overrated. Mm. Look at our own families. We do not replicate. We, we get a child, and then it's our job to grow, grow the best version of who that child is. But the idea of replication is a narcissistic, privileged fantasy. Um, and then sustainability. You know, how are you building in for local leadership to hold the innovations that you're hoping to grasp? I don't think... Um, I don't think investments, for instance, in accountability can be in in school can can be severed from school culture. I don't. I mean, it's your point in in the future of smart that these systems are are interrelated, and if we go in and do a vaccine around curriculum and do. Um, uh, colonoscopy around pedagogy, and we insert a tattoo on uh, an assessment system. We've lost the essence of the deep, beautiful interdependence of schools that work. If you've been lucky enough to be in one, you know that all of those systems are in alignment and in jazz. When one goes awry, another has to improvise. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't cauterize innovations the way I'm afraid funding sources do. And in the research that you fund, ask who makes up the research team. And if it's four white people, all of whom were trained at Yale, sorry, they'll have to get their money elsewhere. Mm. We, we need diverse knowledge producers sitting around a table daring to produce rigorous, generalizable knowledge that matters both today and mm, tomorrow. Thank you. And uh, yeah, patience, I think, right? And time. These things, yeah, they're, they're processes. And therefore, how do we think about funding? How do we think about defining impact, asking people to demonstrate the impact that they've had? How do we think about that in really different ways and on different timelines? And just one more thought. I, I might have mentioned this to you before, but... Um, I was at a set of TED Talks, um, and um, 
most of the speakers who preceded me uh, quoted the now famous either Zuckerberg or Broad quote, move fast and break mm. things. And then I got, a, and these were uh, all all people of color. It was a friend of mine who, who ran a black TED Talk, and I was the white woman. And I got up there and I said, boy, I hang out in communities where you move fast and broke things. And And there were other things I said <laughs> about, you know, a piece of the pie and a seat at the table. And to me, it sounded like Jews 50 years ago, where we then forgot our radical roots. Um, but take notice of where are the beautiful, beautiful connections and strengths that already exist in the communities you're working with. Take notice of what's there before and how you can help grow it rather than sever it or assume it's pathological and um, needs to be replaced whole. Um, I have a foster son, and I know that just yanking people or um, systems out of their natural roots leaves trauma. It just leaves trauma. But recognizing those roots and, and, and um, nourishing them and then placing new ideas grown from and with community, amazing things can happen. Thank you so much. Uh, I would like to end because the future of SMART is really premised on the idea that we all have ways in which we contribute to the world. We have a system right now that asks a binary question, are you smart? As opposed to how mm -hmm. are you smart? So Michelle, how mm -hmm. are you smart? Uh, you know, I, I, I have, I'm just lucky I have a gift of seeing possibility even where I'm wrong. <laughs> it's probably a white immigrant girl. Mm -hmm you know, who still looks at the Statue of Liberty and tears up knowing that we've betrayed so many generations of immigrants since. Um, I, I, um, I see capacity and desire and hunger where other people see despair or deficit. And um, so I've taken as my task to build research spaces where, where that kind of knowledge can be animated and developed. Dr. Michelle Fine, thanks so much for our conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. The Future of Smart podcast is a project of Grantmakers for Education and is made possible through the support of our generous member sponsors. If you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe and follow us on social media. You can find links to resources related to today's episode in the show notes. More episodes and events can be found at edfunders.org. To learn more about the future of SMART, visit ulca.com, U-L-C-C-A.com.